Welcome to ProActivity's Everyday Extraordinary Show, where we highlight the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, from the gym, to the workplace, to the community, and everywhere in between. We hope you'll enjoy listening to these stories as much as we do. Here we go. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Uh, another episode here of Everyday Extraordinary, and um, I have a, a, a really really great couple of guests here today on our show and, and we're super excited to have a, a really enlightening conversation and now uh, I'm going to welcome back for I believe the third time on Everyday Extraordinary uh, my co-host here Dr. Aaron Perez uh, managing partner of Proactivity Chicago uh, and coming by way of Washington uh, and, and Aaron welcome to the show good to see you my friend. Good to see you too, and uh, it's great to be back for my third round. And uh, I've loved season one of uh, Everyday Extraordinary. We've had so many amazing stories shared, and I look forward to uh, hearing another amazing story today and getting to share it with our audience. That's great. Yeah. So why don't you tell us who who are we bringing on the show today, Aaron? So. Uh, our guest today comes by way of Chicago. We have Dr. Diana Grant. Uh, I met Dr. Grant when I was working as a physical therapist in Chicago last year. Uh, and uh, I, right away, sometimes you, like when you first meet someone, you just know there's something special about their, their personality, their, their vibe. And I felt like Dr. Grant and I just uh, meshed very well during our early morning PT sessions. And as I got to talk to her and got to know Dr. Grant, um, I, I learned about some of her story and I've learned even more about her story as we've reconnected recently. And uh, it reaffirmed that she is a very uh, worthwhile guest to have on our podcast and get to share her story with uh, all of you. And so uh, Dr. Diana Grant, Dr. Grant, I should, should we just call you Dr. Grant throughout the show? Fine, fine. Does that work for you? Okay. Dr. That Grant, for me. welcome. <laughs> welcome. So, um, Dr. Grant, I think I want to start off by asking you just uh, give us kind of your origin story, where you grew up, where you're from, and, and a little bit about what your upbringing was like. Okay. Um, hello, audience out there of the world. My name is Diana Grant. I'm presently in Chicago, and today I get a chance to talk to you on my birthday as I celebrate 66 years around the sun. All right. Happy birthday, uh, by the way. I awesome forgot to say that. Awesome. <laughs> um, the thing I'm going to talk about today, a, a lot of people are interested in, I'm a native Mississippian, born and reared in Mississippi, and if you can do the math, 66 years ago was 1954. In 1954, this country was really in turmoil. That was a decision, Brown versus the Board of Education and desegregation. And we had a president at that time, Dwight D. Eisenhower. And Dwight D. Eisenhower made certain decisions about segregation where he sent in the troops to restore order in Little Rock, Arkansas, where there was great disturbance about the integration of the school system. So imagine, I am now coming into the world, and the time that I come into the world 
is going to change how black students are educated at that time. Being born in Mississippi, um, very segregated South, 1954, very much active with Jim Crowism, and Jim Crowism is truly continuing the separation. I grew up on a farm in Mississippi, and this farm I grew up on, I am proud to say, I grew up in a place in the same, born in the same house that my grandfather was born in, and a fourth generation. So I grew up knowing my great-grandmother, who, if you go back and look at those deeds, she purchased, her name is on there, way before feminism, her name is written, Hattie Robinson Grant. And Grant was her married name, and she married a gentleman, Frank Grant. And the story goes is that two brothers and a sister bought approximately 300 plus acres of a plantation. It was called the Agonia Plantation. And because they were people of color, they quote unquote sold them the bad land. And that's where water would stand and et cetera. But they were determined, listen, they were determined to still make it. And they went on and bought this land. And these two brothers bought on either side of their sister and their sister was in the middle. So that house born in on a Saturday night um, is where my grandfather was born in as well. So imagine there I am, what's happening in 1954, had a mother who uh, parents were determined she was gonna be educated and she was gonna be a teacher. I mean, they had um, the same family was a family that got together with other family, formed a church next to the church. They built a schoolhouse because they were going to educate their kids no matter what. The war had occurred. And so many of them had sons and cousins who had gone off to the war at both World War I as well as World War II. And some had come back and some had not. So what the plan was, was your primary education would be in Mississippi, either in that one um, room schoolhouse that was next to the church, or they were gonna put you on a train and send you up north to some relative who had made it either in New York or Chicago where I am now. So 1954 takes place. So the world is changing. I get ready to go to school and I go to the segregated elementary school because again, separate but equal was the law of the land at that time. Um, we're still going on. There are plans of integration throughout the South. Having grandparents and again, listening to my great grandmother being so proactive was participating in all the different activities. So my grandfather volunteered because he felt very confident that from that one-room schoolhouse, there was always a tutoring session for the kids who went to that church. You know, we learned to read early. I mean, probably, and we learned to memorize definitely Bible verses and 
etc. And I can remember having tea time with my great grandmother and she's taking you through verses to remember. I can remember she even making us recite Shakespeare, you know, and small coins and so forth. Because again, that's part of the educational system and the socialization that was going on. So, and my grandfather being such a good mathematician himself, you know, we were doing our timetables before we were doing anything else. And now, remember growing up on a farm, how important math is. So very early on, you must know what a pint, a quart, a bushel. Yeah. A measurement system is so key to yeah. your survival because that's part, not only your survival for eating, living, but that's the economy. Because I grew up on a farm, we raised cotton, we sold the cotton, we had bales of hay that we would sell to farmers, etc. We raised corn that was for feed. So you heard the terminology of bundling and so forth very early. It becomes a part of who you are. Okay. The story goes on when we talk about my education in particular. At the time I was 12, um, my grandmother, youngest sister, and they were very close, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And um, Madison County, where I grew up, is only 12 miles north of the capital of Mississippi, Jackson. And in Jackson is the University of Mississippi. University of Mississippi Medical Center. And if you go back and you look at medical history, at that time, we had just medicine using the Whipple procedure for um, carcinoma of the pancreas, or definitely the head of the pancreas at that time, because that's what caused all the pain, the jaundice, yeah. and et cetera. Well, my aunt, my great aunt had gone through that, and I never forget, we went to visit her on a Sunday evening. And we were sitting in the large waiting room and my grandmother and some other older women, because I grew up around older women, were there and they were talking. And I remember seeing this African-American male physician walking around. And my grandmother made a mention. She says, you know, we see colored men doctors. Because personally, we had a primary doctor in our community that was African-American, you know, and we had dentists because of that segregation. So I grew up seeing black doctors, black lawyers. So to right. me, it was not something you couldn't do, right? right? I mean, it's just, you saw that. And the day at the university and my grandmother turned to me and she said, you know what? There are not enough, and she used this term, colored women doctors. So that's what you need to be because you're smart enough to be a doctor. You know, you're 12 years old and your grandmother telling you that, it's like, right. And I'm scared of needles. Yeah. You know? Is it okay um, if I recount the story so far from what I've heard? So it sounds like you said born in uh, the mid 1950s, right when there was a uh, significant um, change happening right. in America with regards to um, the, you know, um, 
civil rights movement as well as a big education shift, exactly. which to me has a huge parallel to 2020 when you oh. think about our, our current sort of um, racial uh, change and, and I guess tensions that are happening as oh, well yeah. as the pandemic causing and you know, the necessity for a huge education shift because people are now being educated from home and not even going to school. Um, and then you got into your, your family history and uh, there's uh, you know, a long history of your family here and uh, you know, being American and owning land and raising their family on a farm and, and working very hard and setting an expectation for their family members that you can do anything, including being a black female physician, um, which is what you were told you could be and what you eventually did become. So that's sort of the, uh, the story that I've heard thus far. And so you're still, you're still you know, a, young, uh, you know, a young female in this narrative and haven't got quite to kind of higher level education yet, including even high school. And I know there's some, some uh, stories of perseverance within that. So I'm sure we'll get there soon, but did we cover it so far? Uh, excellent. And I love how you bring it current. As growing up, as my parents have always said, there's nothing new under the sun. And this too is how you dig deep and you persevere. So again, being told that on this track, love the sciences, et cetera. Um, I told you how active my grandparents were in the movement. So now this desegregation comes to Mississippi. And now the allocation, they're really looking at geographic lines when you assign kids to school. First, it was totally voluntary. Voluntary was you voluntarily integrate. So initially, my grandparents did not voluntarily integrate, but then they started looking at dividing lines along uh, geographic location. So we fit into that dividing line. So my grandfather raised his hand and said, yes, my sister and I will go to the predominant, the majority school. And it was like I was terrified, you know, I'm away from my friends, etc., and I'm going into an environment where I know they don't want me there. It's hostility. But at the same time, it's what I was always told from that home, no one can take away from you what's up here. And I'm pointing to my brain right now, the things that are in that cavity and the things that you learn belong to you. They don't belong to anyone else. And again, hard work. Your work is no different. Your cursive writing is no different. Your calculation, the timetables are the timetables. There's no separate timetable. They're the timetable. And that's what they told us every day. And I had to keep that in mind because it was real hard. I went to school doing very well and my teachers wouldn't pass out my grades with the rest of my classmates mm. because their perception of me is I am a black student. I can't be as bright as they are because they've been told that all their lives. And so my teachers felt like, and some of them who were humane without just totally destroying this young child, instead would just fold my paper in half and either wait to the end of class or 
when we had recess time and we were out in the common and bring it to me. So what they would tell my rest of my classmates that I was doing so bad, they didn't want to embarrass me. But they never gave me an explanation. They just simply folded my paper with the exception of my chemistry teacher who just told me to my face, I can't let you do as well as these other two, and there are two guys, and I think I've told you this story before in my class, well as they are, because I may lose my job. I mean, he was the only one that was forthright. So I could always be number three. So if one person made, he, if he put it on the curve, if one person made 79, the other one made 78, I would guarantee the 77. Wow. If one person made 95, the other one made 94, and I made 93. I mean, I was guaranteed to be the third place, you know, though my work may have warranted me to be first place. Mm -hmm. But wow. I was always guaranteed to be in that spot with that. And I just thought, oh my goodness. And it does wear on you. And, and I would come home and I would, you know, tell my grandfather, he, he keeps saying, you know the work, don't you? Yeah. And I would say, yeah, and he would drill me and so forth. He said, so what? But there was no socialization. And I never forget one day we were in study hall and one of my classmates, which I have a lot of respect for her today, wherever she is in the world, she came to me and she figured it out. And she came by my study hall desk because I never would go to the cafeteria. I was always reading. So she figured if I'm always reading and I'm always studying, I am really doing better than they are. Because they were dating and in different sports and so forth. So she said, you're really doing better than we are, aren't you? Mm. And they just don't want us to know. And I never answered her. And I just simply smiled. Because of that, that does wear on you. And when you want to talk about today, and now we can probably say that was depression or whatever, but being, having that supportive family, having the community that cared about me. Because on Saturday, I went to a Saturday school that was at a small college right there in the same county that was is known as a historical black college, Tougaloo College, where on Saturdays I would go there and I would see these students that I thought were just brilliant. They didn't even, to me, talk like the rest of the people in the world. You know, I mean, just to hear them speak and their articulation was like, I want to be like them. Wow. But on Saturday, that was my sanctuary. So now this is why I'm talking about community caring yeah. about you. It meant just as important for them that I succeed. So I would bring my books on Saturday and they made sure I was always ahead mm -hmm. of what was in the book and the lesson plan as it related to that. So again, not only that intimate family caring about me, but now you see how the community wraps yeah. itself 
around <laughs> so you can be successful. And you're right, it's just not one way. I love how you bring that up now, educating. It's just not one way to be educated. Or the school, the school room isn't the total answer. Yeah. And it wasn't, look how long 50 years ago wasn't the total answer. And even today that parent, and I'm quite sure my grandparents felt overwhelmed, but sought out that resource to even help them through this. And it was a crisis. And it was acts of terrorism. Just this week, the nation celebrated Carol Robinson's um, birthday. Carol Robinson was one of four little black girls that church was bombed mm. on one Sunday morning in Birmingham. Carol Robinson and I would have been the same age. Wow. This rocked the world. How can someone throw a bomb in a Sunday school class with little girls? So you, you see the trauma that if based on today and you were talking to Sal, child psychologist today, I'm an ace child, right? Right. That, that's traumatic experience. We're seeing it on the news. And we're in a situation going to school that that can subject to happen to us. Right. You know, with it being in place. Um, right. However... <laughs> I got to a point and I negotiated with my grandparents that in going to school on Saturday, I realized I can go to college early. And you can go to college early if not only finish the requirement for school, but like take the ACT or SAT test. And I discovered that. So I struck a deal with my uh, grandparents if I took one of these tests and did very well and got accepted, could I go to college early? And they agreed. So that is what I did. I did very well. I got admission in that college, Tougaloo College, early admission. And I sent my books to school. So literally, the school system now is angry because I'm a dropout. I am literally listed as a dropout from high school because I didn't graduate. I just, my grandfather took my book and I went on to college. Basically. Let's just pause there for a second to, to, to really, I think, like absorb the enormity of that statement because you, you mentioned, you, you kind of brought in a, 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 I guess, a contemporary term that you said ACE child. For those who don't understand the acronym, I believe it stands for Adverse Childhood Event or Experience. Yes. So you were, you were a child who experienced adverse events through this um, civil rights movement, which was trying to integrate schools. You went to an integrated school, which had policies that worked against you and biases that worked against you. You were not going to ever be the top of your class because you were never going to be allowed to be the top of your class. Exactly. And I didn't imagine the amount of frustration oh, and yes. that likely incited inside of you and likely your family and community, but they took that energy and transformed that anger into love and compassion and empathy and drive. And you were able to successfully navigate your way through that situation, graduate early, 
the system was so screwed up. They labeled you a dropout, even though you were an excelling student. Exactly. Thank goodness you were able to make it through that, get to college, and get on your path towards an can, amazing Can life. you imagine someone who gets an ACT score back then of 29, and they call them a dropout? Right. That's, <laughs> you know. It's crazy. At that point in time, that's cool, you know. But what my community did was applaud me. People around me who loved me, so that meant that I trusted them. They applaud me, and the rewards of was this early admission. So I go on to college. In that process, is at school doing my science. I go to a school known to produce. African-American doctors for the state of Mississippi. Tuvalu is known for that. They put you on this track. It's almost, you know, they brainwash you and say, okay, this is what you're going to do. These are your courses and et cetera. Um, we had a very dean and the president at that time had no problem telling the story about Tuvalu because it's got to survive. I won a scholarship to go to the University of California, Berkeley to spend my junior year there and can you imagine being 18 from Madison, Mississippi, showing up at Berkeley in 1973 with a pantsuit and matching hat? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm from the South, I had to look cute and yeah. my hair was done, and everybody walking down Telegraph Avenue barefoot, tie dye. <laughs> And you yeah. couldn't tell the guys from the girls from the back because everybody had long hair. So what a cultural shock that yeah. was for me. Maybe, maybe if you have a picture of that, we could share when we post the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Grant, I want to just clarify something because I think you said you wound up going to Cal Berkeley as a junior. You had already finished two years at the right. local college and you were only 18 at that point, which today's freshmen in college right. are 18. So that's so you were two years ahead, um, which is pretty amazing to think about. In I wanted any, to get out of high school. Yeah, it's amazing. I didn't, I didn't like high school. I was under so much pressure. <laughs> wow. So, so as a 16-year-old, you, quote, dropped out. Right. Only to admit. Uh, only to enter into college on a pre-med track, right. only to earn yourself a scholarship to a tremendously prestigious institution, um, only to go there as a junior at 18 years old, again, two years younger than probably the other classmates at, right. at that age. My roommate, I was living in the freshman dorm because they saw you exactly right. The university saw my age and everything in assignment. So I was, you're exactly right. They assigned me to stay in the freshman dorm. Wow. All, I was in the freshman dorm. You're exactly right. My That's roommate, amazing. they had all just come out of high school. Yeah, if every high school, uh, quote, dropout had the same kind of story that you had, holy cow, huh? It would be pretty amazing. Uh, <laughs> so where, uh, where from, the, I mean, you obviously went to Cal Berkeley, you went into, you, you got your, um, your MD? 
Right, MD came back, graduated from Tougaloo, came here to Chicago, to Chicago Medical School, which is now called Rosalind Franklin Medical School, matriculated there. I wanted to be in Chicago because of Cook County. Because again, remember I started this conversation talking about the great migration from the South and particularly from Mississippi, it is called doing uh, railways in this country. A wonderful book I'm going to plug is called The Warmth of Other Sun by Isabel Wilkerson. Talks about for African Americans in this country, their plight to their success. If you were west of the Mississippi, you went to California. Uh, and, and follow the rail lines, and you can figure that out. If you were in the Carolinas, you went up to New York. If you were in like Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana, the Illinois Central Railway, because it went from Chicago all the way down to New Orleans. They used to call the train the city of New Orleans coming south, um, and then the IC coming north for mm -hmm. the Illinois Central. So coming to Chicago, I had all these relatives here in Chicago. Even my mother had left the south very early to come, though. My grandfather told her to let me stay there to make sure, quote unquote, I was raised. And he wasn't so sure bringing me up north as a little girl was a wise thing to do. And I always said, that's a wise man to make a decision how to nurture the family. And I think now I, I challenge and I teach Sunday school um, in my church, I challenge us based on our faith to look inside of us and how we nurture and not tell people what to do, but nurture them into guidance. Mm. Uh, and how, um, I probably told you the story, I found the letter that my grandfather drafted to his daughter saying how he came to that decision for my grandmother and him to raise me, but for her to go north because they looked at that as a better opportunity because had she finished college, most likely she may have just still worked in a factory or luckily taught in a local school, but he also knew that his daughter had other ambitions, wow. just not to limit herself. And, and postal jobs, those were the educated people kind of jobs that they took place. Anyway, coming to Chicago, I wanted to train at Cook County, going to Chicago Medical School at that time, it was located in the medical district here in Chicago. And the medical district is defined as Rush University, University of Illinois, the VA, and Chicago Med at that time. And I wouldn't trade anything for that journey because when you really want to talk about a village working together, because when you're in medical school, that's almost make it a level playing field because you're trying to get through. Doesn't matter the color of your skin or anything. Anatomy, physiology, and biochemistry take away any barrier because <laughs> you want to pass, right? You, you want to pass, you want to do well. I always say, once you go in that anatomy lab, 
and the bodies have sit in that formaldehyde for years till the next crew come in, you can't tell nothing because the body starts face down. Right. So you never know if it's male or female until you turn it over. You always start from the back. Yeah. And it is the most humbling experience that anyone could have. Because formaldehyde molds all of our skin. Doesn't matter what your pigment was. Right. You lay in there long enough time. You don't know who you are, et cetera, or right. what group that you represented. And I think being there in that medical center area in that first year where it didn't matter what school you were, the huge library was there at the University of Illinois. So you just kind of shared stuff unconditionally. Because yeah. you were studying. You know, you, we all had to get to part one of the boards. You all had, we had the same milestones. Yeah. And if someone had something else that you could rely upon. And I think for me, the nucleus of that was being at Cook County. Because being at Cook County was world-renowned for a place to train. And you're talking about young and thirsting for knowledge. We would just hang out in the emergency room way before HIPAA. You could <laughs> do stuff like that and, and learn. Um, and then I knew I wanted to be there. I wanted to be there in my formal training as much as I can. I'm going to share this story with you. I have a daughter who is in the process of, um, she's in critical care in the nurse anesthetist program. And I made a recommendation to her last week and she does 312 on. And I said, well, maybe, why don't you pick up another day? And if I were you, I would just, moonlight a day in the ED you learn so much mm. and she challenged me she said you want me to work an extra day and I couldn't do anything but laugh knowing how we pushed ourselves yeah. in our training because I mean the adrenaline was so high because so much stuff was coming at you it's almost you didn't want to blink because yeah. you may miss you know, and, and I know people have talked about medical education, about, oh, we push our bodies and how can we think straight, et cetera, based on that. And I'm not saying that was the right way to train, please. I'm not saying that at all. But I wouldn't give anything for that journey. I don't regret one minute because I didn't blink. Yeah, that's that's super inspiring and and super motivating so oh. thank you dr grant and and that just really touches the, the i guess um the iceberg sort of analogy right like we're, we're barely touching the surface with your overall story because now you're just becoming a doctor but unfortunately uh, we only have so much time the yeah. and, and we got to the point that you know some of the tidbits that i wanted to make sure we captured you 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 spoke to it beautifully um and so uh, I would, I think, to just kind of summarize the show, uh, give you an opportunity to do that in your own words and say, what is like the, the key theme or key principle that you'd like our audience to walk away with that you feel like has been the key element that has allowed you to live an extraordinary life 
even though it's been a very challenging one at times. When you care about yourself, when you care about your family, when you care about your community, in caring through actions of compassion and service, your reward will come back tenfold. And that's not rhetoric, because you don't even know this, Aaron. This morning, I signed a contract at 66 to be a system chief medical officer for a sick hospital system. And that was offered to me to apply for it. I did not seek that out. Wow. So there is something greater (laughs) than you. That's what I want everybody to know. There, you are nothing but an instrument of this wonderful universe to keep the stars bright. And my, what I leave with everybody, I want you to be able to look in the heavens one day and see my star. Oh man, uh, Dr. Grant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Dr. Grant, you gave uh, me some chills on that one. That's that is amazing. Um, thank you so much for sharing. And and Aaron, to your point about tip of the iceberg, kind of scratching the surface of the story. Um, you know, I, I'd like to in, invite both of you back on the show at some point because I think that there's a lot more learning that we can all do from your story and, and kind of pull some inspiration um, and to Aaron, you know, to some of the things you said about, you know, kind of overcoming various challenges, challenges that, you know, many of us, um, myself included, and I'm sure many people who listen to this show can't really even fathom because haven't had to experience that. But certainly many um, that probably a lot of people in this world are currently going through. So, Um, I really like how you summed it up at the end there, Dr. Grant, and talked about the idea that we're all just really an instrument, and we all have to kind of do our part to continue to make this world a little bit better, and and certainly you have done that over these last, you know, few minutes with us, even if if nothing else, even if just mine and Aaron's world, Aaron, I don't mind me to speak on your behalf, but I'm pretty confident by the smile on your face that, uh, that you're feeling the same that I am, so... Thank you so much for the, uh, the opportunity to, to listen, and I, and I hope you will uh, not only have an amazing birthday, but I hope you will also uh, take us up on uh, the invite to, to join us again uh, at a future episode. And, and I'm going to call upon you, because if I go to run a system, I'm going to need smart guys like you. Well, you know uh, where to find us. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Happy birthday. Thank Happy you. Happy birthday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. We hope you'll follow ProActivity on social media or check out www.pro-activity.com to keep up with the latest happenings. See you on the next one.